From Massachusetts to Arizona, Minnesota to Ohio, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, President Joe Biden is set to declare a national climate change emergency. But is there one? And even if there is, does he have the power to do so? Myra Ebell from the Competitive Enterprise Institute is here with the answers. It's called the Inflation Reduction Act, but it is just more taxing and spending. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. Is an economic recession now underway? Eric Baim of Reason Magazine looks at the most recent data and gives us the answer. And the great American tradition of having parents and grandparents teach youngsters how to shoot is one worth preserving. So says Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College on this week's American Radio Journal Commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. President Joe Biden continues to cater to the environmental left by planning to declare a climate change emergency and use unrelated powers to supposedly combat the forces of nature. Here with a look at the president's plan is Myron Ebel. He is director of the Center for Energy and Environment at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Myron, welcome back to American Radio Journal. Myron, President Biden a week or so ago had a speech where, of course, he continues to play the climate change card, and he's talking about it being a national emergency. Tell us a bit about what the president said and what he wants to do. He is under pressure from his environmental and climate racket supporters to declare a national climate emergency and invoke some of the emergency powers uh, under uh, several different acts. He did not do that in his speech. He called a climate emergency, but he said, I'm putting off declaring an official emergency. Now, I'm not quite sure why, but the fact is that climate change is a, a very slow-moving thing, and if it's, a, if it's a problem, it's a long-term problem. It's not something that can be addressed by a president using extraordinary powers that have been granted to him by Congress to deal with immediate problems, immediate crises that Congress doesn't have time to look at and deal with. So everything that they're proposing is completely improper, but that's the direction they're moving. The president is specifically looking at the Defense Production Act, and you referenced a couple other acts. Tell us a bit about those acts that the president is looking at and why they're not meant for a situation such as this. The Defense Production Act he used, uh, and I think perhaps President Trump used it as well, President Biden used it to speed up some of the medicines or vaccines for uh, the the COVID pandemic. But the Defense Production Act is really designed if there are national security threats and there are shortages of various supplies, I mean, just something as simple as bullets, then the president can, can take extraordinary powers and order people to do things so that they can provide those things to our our defense. It doesn't make sense to use it for for climate at all. And then there's also the National Emergencies Act, which is used for things like tornado damage and floods. Uh, Again, if climate is an issue, it's a long-term issue, and it's something Congress needs to deal with and to tell the president what to do. 
the president shouldn't just be seizing any, any little power he has and saying, I'm going to apply this to climate. But it's, of course, all part of the strategy uh, that they have pursued, that the president has pursued since day one, to raise energy prices, uh, limit oil and gas production in this country, raise energy prices, not only gasoline, but also electric rates. And he thinks that a little more be gotten out of uh, these emergency powers to further uh, restrict energy uh, production in this country. Myron, taking a look at the fact that we've had both gasoline prices and electric prices going up in many areas, and of course, those rising rates for energy impact the lower incomes in our society the most. How is that any sort of a policy that's worth actively pursuing? President Biden from day one, strong steps to put a limit on energy production in this country and raise prices on behalf of his climate agenda. So the first thing he did was get us back into the Paris Climate Treaty. He suspended all oil and gas leasing, which is done by competitive auction on federal lands out west and offshore areas, mostly in the Gulf of Mexico. And and so they're doing that because they believe, I think some people really believe that, that climate is an existential threat. I think some people see it as a way of gaining power over people. And so although he, he claims and his administration claim in public that they're doing everything they can to lower gasoline prices, in fact, they've done nothing to lower gasoline prices. They're going down a little bit right now for other reasons. But in fact, their whole agenda is to make energy more expensive, conventional energy that we get from coal, oil, and natural gas, which last year supplied 79% of all the energy in this country. The two largest after coal, oil, and natural gas were nuclear power and hydropower. And then you've got wind, solar, and a few other things way behind. So they want to make conventional energy more expensive so that people will have to move to wind and solar power and other kinds of renewable energy. The same thing's going on with uh, our vehicle fleet where they're trying to push people into buying electric vehicles. By making, Every time the price of gas goes up, there are more people who say, well, maybe we should buy an electric vehicle, even though it costs a lot more to begin with. Getting back to the whole issue of the climate change agenda the Biden administration is following here, Myron, we saw the Supreme Court of the United States in June slap down the Environmental Protection Agency for overstepping its bounds. How much of an overstep is the Biden administration taking here by looking at the Defense Production Act and the other acts that you mentioned? Does this also not seem to exceed the authority that was granted to them by Congress? Yes, it very well might. But of course, these things take time to work their way through the courts. And so he may be able to pursue some of these actions if, if he does declare a national climate emergency, which he said, I'm, I'm getting to it. I just haven't done it yet. So the president will be able to get away with things for a while before the courts step in and say, hey, wait a minute, the, the law does not give you the authority to do this. And in the meantime, investors are being scared out of uh, investing in conventional energy. Consumers are being hurt with higher prices. And the automakers are saying, oh, yeah, we agree. We're going to get completely out of gas-powered engines and go to all, all electric, even though we are sitting on the world's largest reserves of uh, petroleum. 
We have been talking with Myron Ebel, who is director of the Center for Energy and Environment, that at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Myron, tell us a bit about CEI and also where can folks go on the web? You have written extensively on these issues. Where can they go to read your writings? I have a lot of colleagues who write a lot more than I do on our blog. You can go to CEI.org. We are a small free market public policy institute. And CEI, unlike many others, concentrates on regulatory issues. So I do energy and environment regulatory issues, uh, but we have co- I have colleagues who do financial regulation, labor, uh, almost anything that's a regulation, we've worked on it over the years, and you can find that at CEI.org. Myron Ebel of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Myron, thank you for taking time to be with us. Thank you, Loman. Scott Parkinson is at the Club for Growth, keeping an eye on major action in Congress, most of it fiscally or financially related. Scott, good to have you here. Great to be back, Loman. Thanks for having me. Last week, we talked about a major piece of legislation, crony capitalism, involving the CHIPS Act. And this isn't the 1980s TV show. This has to do with corporate welfare to the semiconductor industry. It was poised to go through the Senate. Can you tell us where things stand now? Yeah, this week the United States Senate passed the CHIPS Act, and initially this was a bill that provided $52 billion to the chips industry, and it also included about $24 billion of revenue increases. So in total, the cost was about $76 billion uh, to do this massive piece of legislation, this corporate welfare, this crony capitalism And Chuck Schumer sort of pulled a quick one on everybody, and he filed a substitute amendment that added roughly $200 billion in additional authorizations related to the National Science Foundation and other federal agencies that are going to be doing research and development surrounding the chip technologies. And so what we really have here is this corporate boondoggle that is picking winners and losers, the federal government injecting things, all in the name of so-called national security. They're saying that China can cut off Taiwan at any moment in order to dominate the marketplace here. We obviously get a lot of our chips right now from our ally in Taiwan, but national security hawks in Washington, D.C. are spreading propaganda in order to prop up this corporate welfare program that passed the United States Senate. So ultimately, 17 Republicans and Bernie Sanders were the anomalies. Bernie Sanders was the only so-called independent. He's an independent Democrat socialist. He voted no. 17 Republicans voted yes. And the bill passed the United States Senate 64 to 33. The Senate right now is operating sort of at half steam. We've got a couple of senators that are out with the coronavirus And another Senator, Patrick Leahy, had a surgery again after his fall. So what happened after that? Well, you've got Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer, and these guys have been conspiring together for many months, trying to come to an agreement on the reconciliation package. And, you know, you've got Mitch McConnell here. A lot of guys like to say that he's always playing chess. He's doing these judges. He's putting the United States Senate Republicans in the best position possible. Well, McConnell and 16 of his Senate Republican colleagues voted for passage of the CHIPS Act because they thought that reconciliation with Manchin and Schumer was dead. Well, what do you think happened a couple of hours after Senate passage? The resurrection of Manchin-Schumer reconciliation bill. 
And that reconciliation bill, Scott, I love how the Democrats, the left is really good at this. They always name legislation, some mom and apple pie sounding name that really has no bearing on what ultimately happened. For example, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, which made health care less affordable and less available. This so-called reconciliation between Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin is called the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. Scott, give us some details about it. Everything I've heard, what they're planning to do is only going to add fuel to the inflation fire. What I would start off by saying is this is a massive tax increase. It has $739 billion of revenue raisers, according to the Democrats' one-pager that they've been circulating. And they'll say, oh, what we're doing here is we're doing IRS tax enforcement and we're eliminating loopholes in the tax code. Well, they're actually attacking businesses that use carried interest as a provision in order to invest and grow uh, new and emerging businesses. They're bringing in revenues by manipulating the marketplace for prescription drugs. And then they're also invoking corporate minimum tax. So that's $313 billion of the tax increase. I'm reminded of a quote from our former president, Barack Obama, during the Great Recession of 2009. And he said, the last thing you want to do in an economic recession is raise taxes. Well, so what does this legislation do on the spending side? There are an extension of the Obamacare subsidies that were expanded during the Biden stimulus at the beginning of 2021. You've also got climate change provisions. They're trying to reduce carbon emissions by 40% in the year 2030. This is always like that rosy scenario of what we're going to do to our climate act for our climate activists. We're trying to basically make all these unicorn promises, and they unleash it on the next administration. Joe Biden's not going to be president in 2025. I think that you can put the nail in the coffin in terms of his ability to be an effective president. He's a lame duck president now. He's not going to win re-election. Here's a guy that is operating underneath a recession, and his entire White House communications team has been working with the lamestream media in order to redefine what an economic recession is. But we got that data this week. We know we're in the middle of a recession. We know that inflation is at 9.1%. People are feeling it. It, This is the hidden tax increase that's not so hidden anymore. And I think that the so-called Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 is a bunch of smoke and mirrors for them to appease their climate change activists, their uh, folks that have relied upon Obamacare to distort the marketplace with health insurance, and then they want to go after the, the, the rich and the wealthy, so-called rich and wealthy, when they're attacking these corporations with a new tax that's ultimately going to be passed along to consumers. So while the Democrats want to say there's no new tax increase on anybody making $400,000 or less, and that there's no taxes, no new taxes on small businesses, we know that that's total horse crap. And the bottom line is, The Democrats, Joe Manchin, Chuck Schumer, and everybody supporting this reconciliation package are doing so at a time that they're trying to build up Joe Biden to say he's getting all these economic wins. We're reducing the deficit. We're confronting the recession. And uh, we're doing all this to prop up the chips industry to, you know, be competitive with China. What they're doing is they're promoting an oligarchy, to be quite honest. They're picking winners and losers in the United States to be successful on the back 
of the real working men and women in the United States of America. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. And Scott, a few words about the club. Club for Growth is a membership organization of over 525,000 members. If anybody wants to check us out, our website is clubforgrowth.org. You can sign up and become a member for free. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, thank you for being here. Thank you. The Biden administration is attempting to redefine the term recession since the nation's economy is clearly now in one. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine reports. Economic reality cannot be denied, but can it be redefined? That's what the Biden administration is about to find out. Following the release on Thursday morning of a report from the Bureau of Economic Analysis showing that the United States has endured back-to-back quarters of negative economic growth, a situation that meets the standard definition of a recession. But the White House has taken a novel approach to the beginnings of this recession. Effectively, the Biden administration is asking, what if the recession just isn't happening? Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. This week, we're taking a close look at uh, that new report from the Bureau of Economic Analysis and uh, what it means for the country. And I think more importantly, how it frames the kind of political economic discussion that we're going to have as we head into the midterm. So as I said, the Bureau of Economic Analysis report that came out on Thursday morning shows that the country's economic growth slipped to an annualized rate of 0.9%, excuse me, negative 0.9% in the second quarter of this year, the quarter that ended on June 30th. That comes on the heels of a negative 1.6% growth rate in the first quarter of the year. And the fact that the economy shrunk less in the second quarter than in the first is without a doubt a hopeful sign. It means that things aren't getting worse at a faster rate, at least. But the combination of high inflation, a cooling housing market, and business inventory issues is clearly taking its toll. And as the Wall Street Journal put it on Thursday, the back-to-back quarters in negative territory mean that the country has hit the commonly used definition of a recession. But that's not quite the way the Biden administration is framing it. In fact, just this week, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre got into a bit of a spat with a reporter over this exact question. What is the definition of a recession? Here's what she says. There are many factors. There are many factors, economic factors and indicators to consider. Uh, And I will say that uh, the textbook definition of recession is not is not two negative quarters of GDP. And that came uh, just after Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen appeared on NBC's Meet the Press on uh, Sunday to declare that this is not an economy that is in recession. Even Larry Summers, former President Barack Obama's Treasury Secretary, who has become something of a nemesis for the Biden administration because he correctly predicted that inflation would take off this year. You know, even he has now joined this chorus of questioning the legitimacy of the recession. Here's what Summers told CNN's Don Lemon on Monday night. Whatever Thursday's number is, even if it shows some kind of small negative GDP growth, I think the overwhelming weight of the evidence is that we are not in recession uh, now. The negative GDP is, in a sense, misleading. People spent a lot of money, so inventories got drawn down. That's a sign of strength. 
not a sign of weakness. A lot of the murkiness and confusion here have to do with the backward-looking nature of the economic data that we have no choice but to use, because that's the only kind of data that's available. If you take the BEA's assessment as true, it means that the country has actually been in a recession for as long as six months now, two quarters of negative growth. But you never know that a recession has started until it is well underway. And for the same reason, you never know that it's over until months after it's technically done. We could be already out the other side of this recession and we wouldn't know it for a little while. It will take even longer to get an authoritative answer from the National Bureau of Economic Research. That's the private group that is as close to an official arbiter of recessions as America has. Their definition of a recession takes into account monthly indicators like employment, personal income, and industrial production, along with the quarterly numbers of GDP growth. And so two consecutive quarters of negative growth often, but don't always, correspond with an official recession in the Bureau's perspective. But politics, of course, demands that we have an answer now. There's a midterm election coming up after all, and that's the main reason why the White House and its allies are spending so much time arguing that we are not in a recession. And it's also the main reason why so many others are keen to apply that label. While the overall economic picture is obviously negative, we have to point out that the White House and its allies are right that the signals are mixed here. Brian Deese, the director of the White House's National Economic Council, argued on Wednesday that uh, a number of indicators in the economy remain solid, like consumer spending, which is holding steady. Other indicators like credit stress and falling industrial output things that you would normally look for to indicate a recession are not materializing. And uh, the economy continued to add jobs throughout the second quarter. The unemployment rate is held steady at around three and a half percent throughout the year. So that's hardly a number that would normally ring alarm bells. So clearly this recession, and yes, I think it's fair to call it a recession, is an unusual one. Perhaps that's to be expected. I mean, after all, the country is climbing down from two years of stratospherically high deficits that powered previously unseen levels of government spending that overcooked the economy while the COVID-19 pandemic choked supply chains. So the whole situation was quite unprecedented, and we really just don't know exactly what to expect as the final stages of that whole saga play out. So does it matter what we call this? I think it does, because... Essentially, the game that the White House wants us to be playing here is to mull these questions about basic definitions. You know, what does any word mean except for the thing that we all agree that it means, man? But if you're doing that, then you've already tacitly accepted that it's possible this time is different. Maybe this time, two consecutive quarters of negative growth aren't a recession. The real test of the White House's this-is-not-a-recession messaging strategy is whether actual people believe it, and most of them don't. An Investor's Business Daily poll released earlier this month found that 58% of Americans believe the country is in a recession, up from 48% just two months ago. And a CNN poll released the same week found worse numbers. 64% of Americans say the country is in a recession, including 56% of Democrats. So the Biden administration can call it whatever they want, and the academic debate about all of this is interesting to a degree. But for the purposes of politics, the power to declare recessions isn't really something that resides with the White House or the Wall Street Journal or even the National Bureau of Economic Research. Are we in a recession? You tell me. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Baim. Check out our coverage of inflation and the economy and everything else going on around the country this week at Reason.com. And catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. Generations of young Americans have learned how to shoot and properly take care of guns from their parents and grandparents. That tradition should continue. So says Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College on this 
American Radio Journal Commentary. Liberals don't quite know how to process the case of the Indiana Good Samaritan, Mr. Elijah Dickin. Dickin is a 22-year-old who within 15 seconds landed 8 of 10 shots upon the body of a would-be mass shooter at Greenwood Park Mall in Indiana, for which those present were very grateful. The Greenwood Police Chief James Ison said, quote, Many more people would have died last night if not for the responsible armed citizen. He called Dickens' actions, quote, nothing short of heroic. Dickens was legally carrying his weapon under the state's new constitutional carry law. Now, liberals, they're not really sure what to think about that. They oppose such laws. They also oppose reciprocity laws for those of us who have concealed carry permits and travel from state to state. Personally, I, in May, drove from Pennsylvania through Ohio and Indiana into Illinois. I couldn't bring along my handgun solely because of liberals in Chicago. Those liberals dominate the legislature and deprive Illinois citizens statewide of basic Second Amendment freedoms. It is flatly absurd that farmers in flat, rural, remote areas of Illinois are at the mercy and control of Hyde Park liberals. Of course, it's like that in many states. One liberal big city dictates laws for everyone else in the state's remaining 99.99% of square miles. But back to Mr. Dickin in Indiana. Liberals expressed shock and bewilderment that Mr. Dickin had no police or military training. They're amazed that he learned how to use a gun from his grandpa. (laughs) Well, a trigger warning, pardon the pun, to liberals. Since the founding of our American Republic, most of armed citizenry learned to shoot from their grandpas and their dads, their uncles, big brothers, and even some grandmothers. I learned to shoot from both grandfathers and my father. My cousin Drew spent hours target shooting into a stump in my grandfather's basement in New Kensington, Pennsylvania with a twenty-two rifle. In recent weeks, my own 14-year-old and I have been shooting a 22 Magnum rifle and a 22 handgun at a stump behind my house. My dad will be teaching my son to shoot a deer rifle in the next few weeks. Here's a double trigger warning for liberals. Once upon a time in America, young boys learned to shoot, brace yourselves, <laughs> at school. Yes, school. When things like religion and virtue were practiced as much as target shooting, schools had rifle clubs. Yes, they really did. When I was in school in the 1980s, we had a gun club. Many of you listening recall such clubs, right? They were common. In 1984, the year I graduated high school, New York State still had 65 school districts with rifle teams. I was recently talking to an 82-year-old man who was in high school in the 1950s. He regularly brought his gun to school. Yes, he strolled in with his 22 rifle, which he placed in his locker. Other boys did the same. The gym teacher after school grabbed his shotgun from his office and drove the fields with the boys, shooting rabbits after class. Funny, no one thought of shooting up their classmates. My mom remembers her parents in the 1950s taking in hunters as boarders during deer season in Emporium, Pennsylvania. These were complete strangers, often steel workers and coal miners coming up from Pittsburgh to hunt in the mountains of Cameron County, Pennsylvania. Many were World War II vets, surely some plagued by what we today would call PTSD. And yet they brought their ammo into my grandparents' house and cleaned their rifles in their overnight bedrooms. My grandma woke them up at 5 a.m., made them breakfast, and off they went into the snowy woods to hunt deer. And guess what? Not a single murder. 
I could give numerous examples. Many of you listening right now will shrug this off as a bygone era, which, admittedly, it is. What we need today in the 2020s is a nation of decent, law-abiding Americans who can control themselves as well as their aim. This country suffers not from the Second Amendment, but from a culture flown off the hinges, no longer anchored by the Judeo-Christian values that tempered passions and taught people about self-control. This is a culture of post-Christendom, one that secular liberals ironically had craved. Well, behold, my dear liberal friends, it has arrived. And guess what? It is ugly. And sadly, it's only going to get worse. For American Radio Journal, I'm Paul Kengor. Thanks for listening. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including KCBC-AM in Manteca, California, WRQV-FM in Ridgeway, Pennsylvania, along with WRYV-FM in Milroy, Pennsylvania. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program, please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom. Freedom.